Today and next week, we're going to be kind of uh, bouncing around from topics a little bit before our missions month begins. And today, we're going to be looking at John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. Now, that's right, John 3.16, if that sounds familiar to you, it should, because John 3.16 is probably the most popular verse in America. If, if you know a verse by heart, this is probably it, except for Jesus wept. A lot of you might know that one. There's the shortest verse in the Bible, so that might be an easy one too. But John 3.16 is one of the most popular verses in America, even if you don't go to church, even if you're not a Christian. Many people have heard of John 3.16. I think Tim Tebow used to, used to put it on his uh, black, uh, the, the eye paint thing, right? John 3.16 over here. And, and what is that verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? It's a verse that a lot of people know by heart. But the, the reality is we've heard this verse so much that it can kind of be like doesn't do anything in our hearts, right? It doesn't stir us in any way because we've heard it so much that we've become kind of inoculated to this verse. But this verse is an incredible verse, and it tells us about the Father's love. This Father's Day, what I want to focus on is the love of the ultimate Father, our Father in heaven, the incredible that love that He has for the world. And I just want to put the spotlight on that for a moment so that we can give glory to God for who He is. And um, my prayer is that as we come to see His love in hopefully a fresh and a new way, it will really encourage us in our relationship with Him too as sons and daughters of God. And if you are not a Christian, if you're exploring Christianity, I hope that this passage also will give you some new insights into this verse that you're, using, you're used to seeing maybe held up at football games or something like that. It is, it is so, there is so much behind this passage. Let, let's get into it here. It says in verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, the first thing I want to point out is that when it says here, for God so loved the world, I think the way that we're, we're used to interpreting that right away is we think it means, oh, because God so, so, so loved the world, he gave his only son. It is a so of intensity. He loved the world so much that he gave his only son. I, I think we're used to thinking about it that way. To be honest, for most of my life, when I read the verse, I thought about it that way. I think that's what it means. It seems very, very natural, but that's actually not what it means. In the Greek, the word so there is basically translated thus, um, or in this way, or in this manner. In other words, we can, we can translate this verse as this is the manner in which God loved the world. It's not saying God so loved the world that he gave his son. He's saying this is the manner in which God loved the world. Okay. Now, lest we think that, oh, that detracts from the intensity of it. Oh, does that mean God doesn't love the world that much? Basically, it doesn't matter how you translate that word so because the fact that it says he gave his only son points to the incredible intensity of the love of God. Even if that word so means this is the manner in which God loved the world, it is such an intense manner 
because he gave his only son. He gave his only son. And the word gave doesn't just mean God sent, that he sent Jesus into the world, but incorporated into that gave is also the giving up of his son. He gave his son in order to give Jesus up to death upon a cross. He gave his son and he gave up his son. That's how great his love is for us. It makes me think about Genesis chapter 22 when God told Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, sounds familiar, right? Whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And, and, and in that passage, what we should feel is we should feel the incredible angst of Abraham in what God was telling him to do because this was his son. This was his only son, Isaac. Not only was it his only son, when Isaac was born, Abraham was 100 years old. 100 years old. Sarah was 90. They'd been waiting all that time to have a child. They couldn't have a child because Sarah was barren, but God opened up her womb, and Isaac was the child of promise. And now, by this time, Isaac's even older. He's old enough to carry some wood and stuff like that. I don't know, he's 5 or 10 or something or another. So it's like Abraham's 105 or 108 years old, and God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go and sacrifice him. And when we read that story, we should feel the angst and the difficulty in Abraham's heart. Any parent, any parent would be able to tell you that this is an unimaginable thing. To sacrifice your child, to give up the life of your child, one of your children, let alone your only child, for the sake of somebody else is an unimaginable thing. And if it were to happen, it would be an act of love that is unimaginable as well. That's what God told Abraham to do. And when his son said to Abraham, Father, where, we have the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham, in a prophetic way, said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham didn't know how God would do it, Hebrews says that Abraham figured God could raise Isaac back up from the dead. He had tremendous faith, but I don't think Abraham even realized what he was prophesying because this was really about God the Father giving up his one and only son 2,000 years ago for the world. Such was the intensity of the Father's love. You know, too, this word here from John 3.16, only, that he gave his only son is, is kind of misleading as well because we think it means, oh, it's his only son. He's only got one. That's a big deal, right? If you've only got one, you only got one son and you're giving him up, that's a really big deal. But that word there only is misleading because in the Greek, it's monogene. Mono meaning one, gene being the word where we get our word today, gene, um, genetics. Uh, where that word comes from. What it means, according to to the biblical dictionary, is that it's radically distinctive and without equal. In other words, God is giving his son 
who is his only son and is unique, and there's nobody else in all of creation like him. Like him. Even if you have only one son and you give up your son for the life of somebody else, it does not compare to God the Father giving his monogene, radically distinctive and without equal son, who is God the Son, the creator of the universe. Such was the incredible love of God. And he, he did this not just for a select group of people. He did this not just for the people that he liked. He did this not just for Israel. But it says that God gave his son for the world, for humanity, so that whoever believes, anybody who believes, it's an open invitation to everybody to come and believe in the son of God to receive salvation. You know, the, the Jews of Jesus' time and in the Old Testament had a very, very difficult time believing this, that God's love was wide enough and big enough to embrace all people. They didn't believe that. Why, why, would, why would God grant his salvation to people who didn't keep the law? They're not like us, God. Eat, not eating kosher. Like, we're eating kosher, God. We are keeping the festivals. We are building your temple. We are doing all the things that your word is saying, God. Why would you show your love to these Gentiles who don't do any of those things? Even in the New Testament, even in the book of Acts, you see how difficult it was for the church and the believers to believe that the Samaritans and the Greeks, the Gentiles, could actually also become a part of the people of God. They had such a hard time believing that God's love was that big. But it was. It is. And it is a love that is, that is given to us so that anybody who chooses to believe will not perish. Perish. Be separated from God. Be condemned by God and spend eternity in hell, in eternal punishment for our sins apart from God. He sent Jesus so that anybody who believes would be able to avoid that worst of fates, but instead could have eternal life. Eternal life here doesn't mean just living forever. That sounds kind of boring, right? No wonder Michelangelo, right? In the, oh, no, Raphael in his paintings, the angels mm -hmm. are just like, they're like this, up there in the clouds, right? It's like another game of bingo, anyone, right? It seems boring. Eternal life. What do we do with that? Eternal life doesn't just mean life forever. It means the quality of life. It means the fullness of life. It means unity with God. It means everlasting joy with God. That is the life that God gives us and offers to us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And it displays the incredible love of God. This is a father's love that he would give his only son so that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. Now, this is, this is the foundation, right? Our God is a God of love. John tells us too, in other places, God is love. He is the very definition of love. There's no greater love than God himself. He is a God of love. Now, this is so important for us to know because we tend to oftentimes not think of God the Father in this way. Let me read the next verses here, 17 to 18. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world 
to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, I, I want to I do something for a moment here. Could you just humor me and close your eyes? Close your eyes for one moment. Close your eyes. Let's do a little, little experiment here. Close your eyes. You guys with sunglasses? Are you eyes closed? Okay, so close your eyes, everybody. At home, close your eyes too. Don't stare at me. Close your eyes. And I want you to picture for a moment, real quick, a few images in your head. First, picture Jesus. Picture Jesus. Okay, next, picture the Holy Spirit. Picture the Holy Spirit. Now, third and lastly, picture God the Father. Okay, you can open your eyes, right? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a guess, take a guess here. Now, if, if you were picturing Jesus, um, maybe your picture of him was something like this, if you could see that, right? I think for a lot of us, when we think about Jesus, we think about somebody like this, this really, really kind, loving, genteel person, and he's holding a lamb. If there's an animal Jesus is holding, it's a lamb, and he's, he's petting him, and we think about this gentle, loving, warm Jesus, right? That's often what we think about. What about the Holy Spirit? Maybe something like this? Some kind of like cloud, like amorphous thing. And I don't know if this is Photoshopped or something, or somebody found a cloud that looked like a dove, right? They're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's the Holy Spirit. God is returning, right? They took a picture of this. Some type of amorphous, like, who is he? What, I, I can't really picture him. What about God the Father? Oftentimes, maybe it's something like this, right? This this beefy, angry-looking grandpa, right? Like grandpa who is still jacked and can take you and submit you in a moment, right? White hair, the long beard, the, the, the mustache, the furrowed brow, the angry look, the pointing finger, right? We, when we think about God the Father, I think oftentimes we think about God in this way. And, and I think you know, related to that, we think that God is, like, out to get me, God the Father. That he's kind of this, like, condemning God. Why do we think that? I don't know. Art like this probably doesn't help, you know. Like, um, you, you know, seeing him portrayed in this way, oftentimes, maybe we think mistakenly that, well, you know, Jesus is warm and fuzzy in the New Testament, but God, the Father of the Old Testament, he's an angry guy. Really, really angry guy, which is, which is not true, right? You read the book of Hosea, and you see God's compassionate and patient and loving heart. And then you look at the New Testament, and Jesus is flipping over tables in the temple because of what they've done to the worship of God, right? They, they are one and the same God. Three persons, one God. They are the same. Or maybe we think of God the Father this way because the word Father triggers us, right? Maybe... Your experience with your earthly father is, is one that is more, you know, condemning or judgmental or, or maybe, you know, like my own experience with my father, whom I loved, but was more emotionally distant and detached. And, and you get this feeling that, you know, God the father is kind of this condemning, out to get me. If I don't perform, if I don't measure up, he's going to be upset at me, constantly disappointed in me type of God. But that is 
so far from the truth. God is not a God who came to condemn us. He sent his son to cleanse us, not to condemn us. Look at Ezekiel 18. It says, God is speaking, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Do I have any pleasure in condemning people? Do I have any pleasure in making, in, in, in pointing, in, in rubbing it in? No, I don't. I don't. God takes pleasure in people turning from sin that they may live. That is the heart of God. The reality is, as we go over to verse 18, it says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Brothers and sisters, please, we, this is a really important theological point that we need to understand here. It's really important, too, when we talk about the gospel with other people. God didn't send his son Jesus into this world to condemn us, to condemn the world. We were already condemned. We were already condemned. God sent Jesus to save us. He sent Jesus to cleanse us. That's why he sent him. We are already condemned before Jesus even stepped foot into this world. Later in chapter 3, in verse 36, John puts it this way, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice he doesn't say the wrath of God comes upon him if he doesn't believe in Jesus. Hey, do you want to believe in Jesus? No, I'm not going to believe in Jesus. Oh, then the wrath of God is going to come upon you. Then the wrath of God is going to fall upon you. No, it says the wrath of God will remain upon you. The wrath of God was already upon you. We were already condemned. Why? Because as Romans chapter 5 verse 18 tells us, when it's talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden, When he sinned against God by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened? Paul tells us, therefore, as one trespass, Adam's one sin, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, led to condemnation for all men, all humanity. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What what Paul is saying there is that Adam, when he was in the garden, he was the representative of all of humanity. He represented all of us. And at that point, he had a choice. God said, I have created you to be in relationship with me. I have created you to worship me, to obey me. I have created you to rule over the, the, the earth and the seas and the fish and the birds and all of those things. I've created you to be my vice regent on earth. But there's one thing you cannot do to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Why would God do that? I believe it's because God was telling man through that one tree that there is an authority higher than you. You're not God. You have tremendous authority. Name the animals. Rule over the fish and the seas and and the mountains and the fields. But you're not God. There is one God. And that tree was a reminder to them of this. Do not eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam chose to eat from it. And when he did, he was the representative of all mankind. When he ate from the tree and sin entered into humanity, it entered into all of us. Every single person 
would be born, would be conceived in sin because of Adam. This is what some theologians call federal headship, the theological term. It means he represented us. When Adam fell, all of humanity fell into sin as well. I know as, as kind of Westerners and, and people in America, we live in a place of inc- extreme individualism. And we say, that's not fair. <laughs> I wasn't in the garden. I didn't sin. Well, that's, that's kind of our Western cultural mindset. The Bible and, and the way God designed things was a more communal, corporate mindset. Adam represented us. But God is fair. Because look, just as Adam represented us and he fell and sin spread to all people, one act of righteousness, what was that one act of righteousness? Jesus' death upon the cross leads to justification and life for all men. Anybody who believes in Jesus experiences forgiveness and righteousness. We, we, we like to complain that ah, Adam, it's not fair that he represented me when he ate from the tree. But nobody ever complains about Jesus representing us when he was hung upon a tree. Nobody ever says, Jesus, that's not right. I should die for my own sins. Get off that tree. It's not right that you represent me. No, God is completely fair. Adam represented us. And Jesus, the second Adam, represented us as well. We were born, we were conceived in sin. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Because we are sinners, because we are conceived in sin, because of original sin, because we're born in sin, it's not long before we start sinning. Ask any parent. We don't give our kids lectures on how to sin, how to go hit your sister or your brother, how to go steal the rattle in daycare and hit the other kid in the face. We don't give lectures in this. We don't train them in this. They just do it. They just do it. It just happens. Selfishness, pride, anxiety, lust, all sorts of things begin to creep. A lack of trust in God begins to creep in because we're born with this sinful nature. This is so important to understand because one of the most common objections is that people will say, why would God, if he is so loving, if he's such a loving God, send innocent people to hell? Why would he do that? Well, the answer is because there's no such thing as an innocent person. There's no such thing as an innocent person. Only guilty people, fallen in Adam, who sin because we are sinners, standing before a God who cannot be anything but perfectly just. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one. You see, God the Father did not send his son Jesus into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. He sent Jesus here with the message of the gospel in order to save the world, in order to cleanse the world. That is the purpose of Jesus' coming. Friends, we are are the cancer patient. We are the ones dying of cancer. God is the doctor who comes and tells us there is a cure. You don't need to die. 
And it would be so foolish of us if we said to the doctor, doctor, you're the one giving me cancer. Don't give me cancer. The doctor's like, no, I'm not giving you cancer. You already have cancer. I'm telling you there's a cure. If you take this cure, you can be healed. You can live. God is telling us there is a cure for our terminal condition of sin, and it is his son, Jesus, whom he lovingly gave upon the cross for us. And if we put our faith and our trust in him, we can be healed. We can be forgiven. We can go from being condemned to being cleansed and becoming a child of God. Friends, God didn't send his son to judge us. If he really wanted to judge us, he could just wait until we all died, until the end of time, and then we all stand before the final judgment seat of God. He could do it there. He sent Jesus in order to cleanse us so that when we stand before him, we would be judged and the words from God would be innocent, cleansed because of my son. This is the love of God. Jesus is the love of God manifested in this world to a condemned world. He sent his son to give us another chance, an opportunity to be forgiven and to be in relationship with God. Now we can have, there are two responses to this. Two responses to this. And here we look at the second half, verses 19 through 21. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now here, John is saying that the light that came into the world is Jesus. That is the Son of God that he has sent in the world. Jesus is the light. Now here's the thing. There's two ways to respond to this light. He says one is that people, they love the darkness, so they avoided the light. They ran from the light. They didn't want to be in the light. They stayed in the darkness. Like Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was the first thing they did? They hid. God said, where are you? They were hiding in a place where they could not be seen and in, in, in darkness. That's what we do. Why do people hide from God? Why do people hide from the light? It says here in verse 19, because their works were evil. Why do we hide from God? Why don't we come to Jesus? Because we love our sin. Because we love our sin. Because we don't want to give up our sin. Because we don't want to give up being God of our own lives. Because we don't want to give up the desires and the pleasures of the flesh. Because we don't want to give up our idols of, of comfort and, and of money and, and of success in the eyes of the world and, 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 and accomplishment. We don't want to give up all of those things and the desires of the flesh and our lust. We don't want to give that up. We love our sin. So we'd rather stay in darkness. This is why people don't come to Jesus. We don't want to come into the light lest our sins be exposed. I mean, like, you know, if I were to go up to somebody and I were to say that, 
somebody who's not a Christian and say, hey, you know what? Jesus loves you. He will save you from hell. He will give you eternal life and bliss for all of eternity. And you know what? You don't need to change a thing about your life. He doesn't care what you do. You could do whatever you want. He just wants to come and love you and forgive you and give you eternal life and you'll be with him forever. I bet you a lot more people will take me up on that offer. <laughs> a lot more people will be like, that sounds pretty good to me. It's like free money. Sure, I'll take that. I'll believe in Jesus. He's got my back now. That's awesome. I think most people will say yes. But that's not what Jesus said. When the rich young ruler came up to him and said, Jesus, I'll follow you, what did he say to him? He said, yeah, you could follow me, but there's one thing you need to do. Sell all you have, give all your money away to the poor, and then come follow me. Why did Jesus say that? Is that cruel and sadistic? No, because he saw that that young man wanted to love Jesus and love money. He saw that that young man wanted to keep the idolatry of money and comfort and the things of the flesh in his life. And Jesus said, no, it doesn't work that way. I want your whole heart. I want all of you. But people don't want to give Jesus all of themselves. And that's why we want to stay away from the light. We want to go into the darkness. This is why Jesus said in John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. This is why the world hated Jesus, because Jesus shined the spotlight of God upon the darkness that the world was living in, and the world did not like that. The world did not want to do that. It's like in my backyard, I have these grow bags with plants in them, and they're these bags filled with soil and stuff is growing, and every once in a while when I move the bag underneath, all these creepy, crawly things are there like, ah! <laughs> you've taken away our darkness, our cover, and they're sort of running around and crawling over the place. And I'm like, ew, it's kind of gross under there. It, it's like, that's, that's what it's like when God shines his light upon us. We don't like that light. We prefer darkness. This is why clubs, if you, if you, had your, if you go clubbing or had your clubbing days like I did in college, you know, they keep the lights real low because then you, they can't see the the pimples and the wrinkles and the, the weird moles and the stuff. Everybody looks like they have perfect skin because the lights are dark, right? You walk outside and the lights are on. It's like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, right? That's why we, we, like, we like the darkness. Um, you know, you ever, I think most of us think that our, our teeth are pretty white, right? <laughs> most people think so, you know? I, I think my teeth are decently white. But, you know, you ever next, stand next to somebody with really white teeth? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, Oh, my. There's a commercial from like 20 years ago. Uh, I think it was like a Crest toothpaste commercial or something. And there's this teacher. I don't know if you're old enough to remember this. And, and she's like with her kindergarten class or something like that. And she's like teaching them colors. Kids, what color is this fire truck? They're like, red. Kids, what color is this balloon? Blue. Kids, what color are my teeth? Beige. <laughs> Off-white. Mother of pearl. And then the, the teacher's like, ugh. Get crest, right? You know, when Jesus was on the mountaintop of transfiguration, what does it say? It said that he was transfigured and his robes became whiter than anybody in this world could bleach them. They became so dazzling white because they represented his holiness, who he is. And in that light, 
as the Old Testament says, even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Some people may say, you know what? That doesn't apply to me. I don't hide. I live the way that I want to live. I'm not afraid. I'm proud of the way that I live. I don't need God. I'm not hiding my sin. I just live the way that I want to live. John Piper, he said this, Jesus is not saying that no sins happen in public. Many people flaunt their sins in public, but they only do this where the light of Christ is so banished that they can get approval from the people that matter to them. In other words, where darkness abounds publicly, you can sin publicly without coming into the light. You see, when all around you is darkness, it's not as shameful to do dark things because you blend right in with society. Brothers and sisters, what does this mean for us? When we tell people about Jesus, when we tell somebody who doesn't know Jesus about Christianity, about the gospel, don't tell them simply that God loves them. Don't just tell them God will give you a purpose in your life. If you believe in Jesus, things will get so much better and you'll have a sense of direction and God will always be in your corner. And then have them believe in Jesus with a shallow conversion. Instead, tell them how broken they are because of their sin and how desperately they need a Savior. Tell them how broken you were without Jesus, with no hope of redemption, no hope of salvation, no hope of being cleansed. But God, in His great love, sent His Son to die upon a cross so that we could be forgiven. Don't hold back. Even Jesus' very name means God saves. He saves us from our sin. He saves us from our sin and our brokenness, something that we could never do ourselves. Now, verse 21 talks about those who come to the light. It says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, that does not mean that there are a group of people out there who are just naturally good and naturally already living in a way that is filled with light. And they're the ones that when they see Jesus, they go, oh, Jesus is like us. So we are going to come to the light and, and, and be, oh, Jesus, oh, you're good and we're good too and, and let's just hang out together. That's not what the scriptures are talking about. In fact, earlier in this passage, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, you need to be born again. You need to be born from above. There's nothing that you can do in order to save yourself, you need to be born through the work of the Holy Spirit. What John does mean is that when we do the things that are right because God has cleansed us, when we walk in the light, we love the light, and we can see that any good that we are able to do is because God is working in us. Brothers and sisters, what this calls for is humility. The gospel means that we're not better than anybody else. We're not better than anyone else. Somebody once said the gospel is like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We're not good people. We could not save ourselves, but God had mercy upon us. 
any good that we do now, those works have been carried out in God, through God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we want to be a church where the light of God shines brightly upon us. And at times that may be uncomfortable, but we believe that God will work in us when we do so, when we approach the light. Brothers and sisters, in Revelation 22, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Friends, the next time Jesus comes, it will be to judge. We will stand before him, and those who have received the Son of God will experience forgiveness and will enter into the kingdom of God, into everlasting life in joy and fullness with him. And those who are condemned already, who have not received Jesus, God's lifeline for us, will enter into an eternity without God in hell in eternal punishment. But this time, 2,000 years ago, to today, to this moment, Jesus came to save. Jesus came to cleanse us. And anyone who would receive his son will receive that forgiveness. I want to invite the worship team up at this time right now. And I want to close with this. I want to say to you that if you are here this morning, if you are listening, if you are online, and you are not a Christian, you have not believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as the one who died upon the cross for your sins, and you have not said, I want you to be my God, I will follow you, Jesus. If you have not done that, God's love is so great that this message is for you. If today is the first time you've ever walked into church, this message is for you. Because it says, whoever, whoever believes in Jesus will receive everlasting life. Not Jew, not just Gentile, anybody, including you. It is for everybody. Come to our Discover Renewal class. Learn about baptism. Learn about what it means to become a follower of Jesus and receive the Son of God as your Lord and Savior. To the brothers and sisters, to those of you who are already Christians, I want to say to you this. I think the application from this message, the call to us, is to draw near to the light of God. To draw near to the light of God in every part of life. If God sent Jesus to save us, to cleanse us from our sins, because of His incredible love, we should not fear drawing near Him. We shouldn't be afraid to approach Him and walk in the light. We should not be afraid to expose our sins and our failings. We should not be afraid to bring every crevice of our heart, every place, every part of darkness within us to Him. We shouldn't be afraid of that because He loves us so. And He gave His Son to cleanse us. In 1 John 4, 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The perfect love of God is so great, we do not need to be afraid to draw near 
him. So what do we do? I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you've been living in darkness, grab another brother or a sister and confess your sin to that person. Don't hide it in the dark. Don't live in shame. Bring it to that brother. Bring it to that sister. Confess your sin. Bring it into the light. And don't be afraid. Because perfect love casts out fear. Grab somebody and say, brother, sister, do you notice any patterns in my life that are not up to the standard of God? Do you see anything in my life that might be idolatry or ways in which I might have lost focus on God? Don't be afraid to ask somebody that and what they might say because perfect love casts out fear. Let us develop hearts and, 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 and attitudes that are willing to receive correction from others because Proverbs says, rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Why? Why? Because wisdom says, when somebody comes and shines the light of God upon me, and I hear that, and I receive that, I get a chance to become more like Jesus. Man, and I love that. I love that. Perfect love casts out fear of correction or of rebuke. Perhaps it's a renewed commitment to sit before the Word of God. And you know how when you sit before the Bible and you read, you know those moments where you read the passage and, and there's a line there and it's suddenly it like, it like, it's like a knife to the heart. You're like, oh, yeah, God, that's me. That's me. And we have a choice to kind of like, we could skip over that and just keep reading and kind of forget that. Hey, I'll get back to it. Or we could say, okay, God, what, what are you saying to me through this? What do you need me to do? You're shining your light on something here. What do I need to do? We don't need to be afraid of that because perfect love drives out fear. It means being able to pray for the things in your heart that you don't want to pray for because you're afraid of what Jesus may say if you're willing to pray about that. You know what I'm talking about? Like there's that room in your heart. If your heart is like a house, there's some rooms you don't want Jesus to come into because you have a sense that he might have something to say about that. It means not being afraid to pray brutally, honestly before God. And to say, God, here it is. Here's all my heart. Here's who I am. And I'm going to bring it into the light. And I'm not afraid of what you may say to me because perfect love casts out fear. If you gave your son for me, I'm not afraid. Like Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I'm not afraid, God, because if you gave your son, if you love me that much, I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to fear. I can bring every part of my life to you because you love me. You've proved it with the cross. Shine your light, Jesus. Your perfect love casts out fear. Anything I bring to you, you only give me better things. If there's anything you say, son, daughter, time to give that to me, it's only because you want to give something better to me. How will you not give me all things if you've given me your son already. You know, honestly, just confessing before you, it's, it's hard for me to pray that way about things in my life. It's hard for me to pray that way about money and finances. Kind of hard. Hard to really invite the light of God into there, into my budget, into my savings, into my investments, because 
kind of like, God, I kind of feel like I need all the money that I have here in the Bay Area. And, uh, you know, I don't know what you might say. I don't know, if, what if you pull a rich young ruler on me or something? I don't need to be afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. If there's anything he takes from me, it's because he loves me and wants to give me fullness of life. Maybe it's scary for you to pray about your future and to really give that to God because what if he changes your plan? What if he says, no, that was actually your plan. This is my plan. We could trust that if he gave his son, he wants to give you a better plan because he loves you. Maybe you're afraid to pray about a relationship in your life. What if I pray about this? What if I really surrender this to God? What if he takes it away? It's because God wants to give you something better in your life. A more devoted and full heart and full life following him. So great is the love of God, brothers and sisters. He who gave his only son for us. If he did that, how will he not give us all things? Let's stand and let's pray in response to God this morning. God, we come before you, Lord, and we just want to move towards you. We want to move towards you. We want to draw near to you, God. We don't want to be afraid of the light. We want to look at the cross because the cross declares the incredible love of God. It declares your motive in everything that you do for us and in us, God. We need not fear such a perfect love. So, Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us as a church to declare, to make a commitment today, to say that I will move towards you. I will move into the light with, with my life, with every part of my life. I will move into the light. I will not be afraid. I will not be ashamed. But, Lord, I will invite you into every area, into any dark place to shine the light of Jesus there in my heart. Oh, God, we pray that your love would help us to become holy trust you and to become more like you. God, we thank you. How great is the Father's love for us. You gave your Son to save us, to cleanse us, and to make us more like you. May we trust this incredible God. Hallelujah, Lord. Would you, brothers and sisters, with me right now, would you bring your heart to God? Is there an area you've been holding back? Is there something you've been afraid to bring before God? Is there something that you've been ignoring or kind of justifying in some way and you've been trying to kind of hold on to that and hold on to God? I'm not saying God is going to take that away from you. I have no idea what's going on in your life. But would you this morning bring it to Him, to lay it at His feet, to trust in Him because He loves you and desires what is very best for you. Would you do that with me right now? Brothers and sisters, would you respond to this message in this way? To move an inch closer, to nudge closer to the light and the love of God this morning because He is a tender, gentle, loving God. Let's do that together this morning, brothers and sisters. Let's, can we bring our heart before Him? Can we bring our heart before Him? He is good. He is good. You can trust Him. You can trust His love. Let's pray. Let's do that this morning.
Oh God, Lord, we want to bring our hearts before you this morning, God, as a church. Oh Lord, we come, God, and we pray, Lord, we pray, Lord, shine, shine your light, God. Lord, remove all fear in the name of Jesus. Remove all fear in the name of Jesus, God. Remove any distrust of you that we may have. God, let us, let us see the cross, God, and let us bring to you, God, our futures, God. Let us bring to you our finances, God. Let us bring to you our relationships, God. Let us bring to you the desires of our flesh, God. Let us bring to you our time, God. Let us bring to you uh, our work and our careers, God. Lord, let us bring it all to you, God. The way that we talk to people, the way that we treat people, the way that we interact, God, our habits, the things that we do at home, the things we do when no one's looking, God, how we spend our time, what we watch, what we listen to, God, and we bring it all to you, Lord, under the loving light of God, under the loving light of God, hallelujah, Lord, because you are love, because you are love, Lord God, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Let's just continue to bring our hearts before God and, and worship the Lord this morning in response to the love, the amazing love of God our Father.